Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Hi, Lydia. How are you? Great. Anthea, how are you? Good, good. It's really nice to see you again today. Likewise, likewise. I'm excited for another amazing conversation. I, I think it's going to be fascinating. This time we're going to talk about what impacts social cohesion. Mm-hmm. And we're absolutely delighted to have with us Ro Allen. Ro is uh, the Commissioner at the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission a long-standing advocate for LGBTIQ uh, Victorians and has held leadership positions in the community and government sectors. Rose been a member of three Victorian government LGBTI ministerial advisory groups and chaired the Ministerial Advisory Committee on LGBTI Health and Wellbeing between 2007 and 2009. As a founding CEO of Uniting Care Cutting Edge, Roe established Victoria's first rural support group for young LGBTIQ people, giving Roe a deep understanding of the issues faced in rural and regional areas as well. Roe has been recognised for extensive community service and is the recipient of a Centenary Medal in 2003 and in 2009 was inducted into the Victorian Government Honour Roll. And we are just so pleased to have you with us, Roe. It's delightful to be able to talk about social cohesion with you and from your particular perspective, especially around um, this whole area of human rights, That's it, uh, yeah. which I think is just a, a really vital component and hasn't actually come up in the other conversations that we've had so far. Mm. So I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what, how, how do you interpret um, social cohesion from a human rights perspective? Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you both, <laughs> Anthea and Lydia, for the uh, invitation. And can I just first acknowledge that I'm making my comments today on the land of the Wurundjeri people and pay my respects to land was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, first question, I suppose. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Human rights and social cohesion, how well, do they fit together? <laughs> well, what does it mean for me? Like, when, when I was invited to come on the podcast... Uh, like every good human rights commissioner, I decided to Google it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> this, is, this is the uh, the full depth of academic rigour that this is going to get today. But I really did align with what the UN definition around, you know, it's, just, it's a sense, co- social cohesion is just a sense of belonging, participation, inclusion and recognition and legitimacy. And I, and I think for me, I've been very, very lucky uh, as a young person. I, repres- I was chosen by the Uniting Church to represent the National Council of Churches, on a lot of international work. And so at the young age of 18, I was able to represent Australia at the um, Christian Conference of Asia. And that's where I think, and again, through the eyes of an 18-year-old, but <laughs> and I'm sure under the surface it wasn't Lydia's all... not that far away from yeah. it. It wasn't all social <laughs> cohesion, but that's where I saw, I think, my first experience of where different cultures could come together and work on human rights issues and leave with... Um, leave with res- resolutions that made a difference. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that struck me was, and I love this bit, you know, the Catholic Church that had you know, millions and billions of dollars would put millions of dollars in and the Quakers would put $500 in mm-hmm. and they got the same voting right. Yeah. And I think for me it's about participation and equality in participation 
is is really signs of social cohesion. So I suppose for me as a young person, that's where really I cut my teeth in mm-hmm. human rights and I understood, I suppose, what they've got great terminology for it now is, is um, cultural uh, I, cultural intelligence, I think, <laughs> you know, CQ and all Ooh. things, but all these things. But really it's about how do you get along with different communities? What do you know? How do you educate yourself? How do you not be ignorant to other communities? Abs- absolutely. Uh, and then when you get that awakening, particularly as a, as a white privileged person like I am, understanding your privilege, checking your privilege, and then what are you doing about it mm-hmm. from a human rights perspective? So that's, that's what I think is the nexus, if you like, between human rights and social cohesion for me. And I was really lucky to, to learn that, I suppose, at a really young age. And then later, it wasn't much later actually, um, into the world of youth work. Yes. And, mm. and um, worked with a lot of young people in the high-rise area in Port and South Melbourne and saw where social cohesion worked and where it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the socioeconomic barriers that are participation barriers and everything else. And, and then later in Shepparton. I um, I managed a Uniting Care agency and I actually managed the what was called I don't know if it's still called the IHSS, which is the International Humanitarian Settlement Services, where we were able to help settle uh, first of all the Iraqi community into Shepparton, and then later the Congolese, uh, Congolese community. And really, what we did then, I suppose, won awards later. But you know, it's um, it again showed that. If you invest in social cohesion, if you don't just hope it happens, mm-hmm. you can see some difference. It, it's and it's so important, and, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to delve a little bit more into this this whole area of, of cultural integration and and people's um, perhaps uh, intentions versus what actually happens when when people actually arrive in your neighbourhood or right next door. So mm-hmm. um, I think there's some really interesting dynamics. You know whether a city and rural are actually the same, yeah. and everybody's navigating those those things on the ground or not. So. What were you able to learn um, about social cohesion? Um, not so much from your lived experience, but through your work, because you have such extensive work across the mm. youth space. And I guess through that, being in that environment, what were you able to learn about social cohesion that you wouldn't have been able to understand if from your own lived experience? Yeah. Well, I think if I take Shepparton. For example, you know the the government's focus, the federal government's focus at that point was you know help help people settle, you know, and what we know that social cohesion isn't is assimilation. Mm-hmm. Then you had a community that just wanted them to assimilate because they could understand that, and that was comfortable, and it wasn't out of their comfort zone. And so, it was very obvious. Very what I learned really quickly is you can almost you know do a whole lot of work with this community, mm-hmm. but really you need to prepare the community that people are coming into about what what does it mean Absolutely. to wear the hijab. It doesn't mean that women are oppressed. Mm-hmm. You don't yes. need to liberate them, gang. <laughs> you right. <know>? There's <laughs> some really fundamentals what is Ramadan, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. That, oh, absolutely. That if somebody doesn't want to take food from your house during Ramadan, they're not being rude. No. And just a, the, some very fundamental things you need to teach a community. And rural and city, we could have another whole podcast on mm-hmm. that. But... You know, in rural communities, hospitality is huge. Mm. And so they want to put on these welcome events in the middle of Ramadan with all this food and just like wondering why they're, you know, not eating that. So, I mean, that was years and years ago. And you hope that, you know, we've come a long way and some places we have, some places we haven't. But I think that's what I've learned. The Mm -hmm. more time you have to do, you know, that education, Mm. uh, because that's what phobias are, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. if you look at Islamophobia, phobia is just a fear of something you don't mm-hmm. know. Absolutely. And it makes sense to me, actually, because I've spoken to a great friend of mine who's a cultural consultant in the university space. And she she comes from an Asian background. And so she was brought into the environment to help, I guess, teachers understand how to better interact um, with Asian or international students. And they recognise things such as, you know, these students wouldn't talk that much or they wouldn't put their hand up or interrupt in class. And the teacher would understand this as complete sort of like reluctancy to engage and all of these sorts of things until they were able to understand that they've actually just come from a completely different classroom culture that now trying to you know interact in this one it seems as if they're being rude or they don't want to engage and without that education we they wouldn't have been able to bridge the gap and she my friend was able to be that cultural consultant in that situation Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until they engaged her that you know those relationships were able to be more positive and often it's just asking questions rather than waiting for somebody to provide you with the handbook, but actually feeling comfortable to go up to somebody and just ask, exactly. you know, why, why is this so? Um, but it's the same as well on everybody's side. I know um, we've done some work about uh, helping people uh, get more accustomed to moving into new rural communities mm-hmm. and discovered that they, they just needed to know things like how does the heating system work or what spiders should I be scared of or <laughs> not. You know, right. Just really simple stuff that's very easy for people to share that type of information. It doesn't actually have to be great big cultural discussions that you need to have or religious discussions about things. People, I think, are afraid to... or they don't want to get things wrong. And Mm -hmm. so in an effort to not get things wrong, sometimes they just avoid altogether. And I guess it's that... That's why we need to sort of address that so that we can can participate more in society. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all do that? I mean, I think about my overseas travel. You watch what everybody else does. (laughs) (laughs) Before you leap, you know. Oh, and you sit back and wait. You don't necessarily really ask a oh. question straight away <laughs> you, you want to Mate. make sure you've got exactly the right sort of person to be talking yeah. to in the first place right. oh, oh out you my biggest cultural faux pas was i ate the date off the table at the <laughs> dinner <laughs> on my very first yeah look at them they're, they're all having all the, you just see the people in the room going oh yeah. my goodness did you really do that yeah <laughs> before well, the year mom saying like the press what it was well, there. you know it's my very first one i don't know how old i was whatever Mm-hmm. You're like, hasn't anyone heard of a grazing table before? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you, you do make the mistakes. And I think that's, that's, right. the, that's, the, that's the bit where you apologise and move on. Mm-hmm. I think Lydia and I were just talking about intent and, yes. and how, how do you actually gauge people's level of intent mm. around certain mm. things. And if you can tell that they're actually just asking because they want to know and, and there's no real... Um, Malicious you know, anger or, or anything yeah. malicious behind it, then uh, generally most people are quite open about that. I think there's a, there's a balance in that too, isn't there? Like the cultural load on a community to educate all the time. Mm. You know, I made a joke about Googling it. But there's some things mm-hmm. you can learn without having to ask the person of colour or the Aboriginal or the LGBTI person in the workplace every question that you uh-huh. have. And finding that balance, you Absolutely. know, on reconciliation week with who organises it, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. is it the Aboriginal people, right. is it, you know, you know yeah. and it's not, we have to share that load. I think that's the, and if you're in the predominant culture, mm. whatever that is in Victoria, Melbourne, I'm not sure anymore, but mm-hmm. whatever that is, I think that, that, you know, from a human rights perspective, that responsibility is yours. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's interesting. So being conscious of who's sort of taking on that emotional labour in the situation or how much of the emotional labour you're taking on. Mm-hmm. Um, Versus self-determination and yes. empowerment and all those other things, you know, um, 
participation and belonging, you need to balance all those things. Mm-hmm. You don't want to take it out of their hands. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Given uh, that we've probably roamed into this particular area, <laughs> but I'm just wondering, what do you think there are particular forces that might prevent a society, a neighbourhood, a community from being inclusive to other members? I think fear and ignorance. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've said that before, but we saw that in COVID. We saw that at the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission that we saw a rise in racial vilification, particularly at the beginning, to people of an Asian mm-hmm. background. So people were, fe- you know, fearful about COVID and lashed out against uh, people from Asian backgrounds. Um, you saw the World Health Organization pick up on this pretty quickly and stopped calling variants by the country. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then we, we go, oh, that's that's global yep. racism. Yay. <laughs> so we saw it go into Delta and other kind of yeah, non- a few more things. Yeah. Yeah, but th- th- we certainly saw that, mm-hmm. and and I think that's you know when when a community is fearful, when it's stressed, when there's pressure, um, when we're not in bumper times, people go back to their you know, whose jobs and all those sort of questions. Which is a really interesting thing given that we're looking out there at at a very tough time potentially Mm. over the next few months or so, maybe even longer. Mm. Do you you think that might bring things out um, in in some groups? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, I I, I don't want to pick on Shepparton. Shepparton's come a long (laughs) way, but, you know, really grateful to have migration as long as they do the jobs that, you know, they pick the fruit and do the things. As soon as they became, mm-hmm. you know, educated and qualified in, in you know, um, p- p- um, professions in, in Shepparton, then, then we saw some more tension. Uh, and then they wanted to know where we're going to get the next load of yes. people to do yeah. the fruit picking. But, you know, I think I think that's also part of the education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And your um, your lived experience, um, how does that tie into this 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 understanding of social cohesion, or how did it help you sort of understand it as well, or where did did, did it spark an interest earlier, or do you have a stronger interest? Would you say because of your lived experience and your your work background, or do you would you just say you're you're one in the many, you're just <laughs> an average person who you know sincerely cares about a cohesive society. Well, I, I would hope I'm not one in a million. I hope there's a lot of us that care about a cohesive uh, society. And I suppose it just comes from a social justice upbringing. Mm. So that was, you know, my my experience. And, and, and as I said, working for, you know, the ecumenical groups in the church, but also at my own lived experience coming out as a LGBTIQ person within the church that wasn't uh, very welcomed. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, wasn't very cohesive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was tension and friction in that. So learning to live in that space. The Uniting Church is, is where I've come from. And, you know, they say we're a diverse church and we're on a journey and you know, <laughs> all those sorts of things. But basically, it tries to, tries to keep everybody connected. Uh, it doesn't always work. But no. So from my lived experience, it's about making sure what drives me is leaving no one behind. Mm-hmm. And there's another great term for it now called intersectionality. But I was going to ask uh, you about this. This is this is so important. Uh, I think about not looking at a person's one identity when there are multiple identities. Mm-hmm. You know, I identify as as uh, non-binary, um, but happy with whatever pronoun people call me. You know, th- I have multiple. I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. I'm a white commissioner. I've got privilege. There's a whole yeah. lot of things about me. I'm a partner. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and I think that all of that needs to be taken into account. And I, I, we just, I think, 
cohesive society doesn't box people in one place. It's often easier said than done, though, isn't it? And, oh, and you, yeah. you've spent quite a, a considerable amount of time working with a community that that where where that sense of their own identity in and of themselves is uh, often challenged, let alone the intersectionality that they may well have from a cultural perspective or a religious perspective or or whatever. What what can we learn from that experience? Well, I'm not the LGBTIQ commissioner now, so I can say this, but the, even the letters of the alphabet don't get along, Anthea. So. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they don't even agree. Yeah. And then there's racism within the LGBTIQ community. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, there's all those aspects, um, and and that you have, to, you know, w- certainly in that role, and in all my work, make sure that you hear from multiple voices, and you get multiple voices at the table. Yeah. And I remember setting up a reference committee for the Pride Centre, which we mm-hmm. built a couple of years ago and opened last year. And uh, you know, we had to have 24 people to get that complete intersection of. The whole alphabet, and we like to add a letter every year yeah. just to keep you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> so, LGBTIQ A plus senior, yeah, plus <laughs> plus seniors under eighteen, lived experience of disability, yeah. Aboriginal, multicultural, rural and regional. You know, yeah, just go trans, on and on. trans woman, trans man, mm-hmm. non-binary. Mm-hmm. So by the time I did that matrix, we needed twenty-four people. We found them. Yeah, but. You know, that's a lot of people at a table to give a voice to. Oh, absolu- absolutely. Know. And we, we, we have this discussion mm. um, about the representational side of things, but also the the, um, the, the sort of lack of awareness of mm. diversity within diversity. So mm. yeah. it's come up several <laughs> times today. Right. Well, you, well, you can get them at the table and then you need to chair appropriately mm-hmm. because as, as I think, Lydia, you've already mentioned, some people will sit quietly because culturally they don't want to cause... Yeah. You know, so, so you have to chair in a way that you make sure that you know in that group, you know the the white the gay men didn't mm. didn't hog the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get them at the table, but I think there's something else to to form cohesive groups or society is around that participation. Yeah. You know, and and supporting people to to gain their voice too. Mm. That's really really important. I've got a little side hustle. Everybody needs a side hustle. <laughs> I've got a side hustle. <laughs> going on at the moment to look at how how the Victorian government can fund places in the Australian Institute of Company Directors course for mm-hmm. diverse mm-hmm. participants mm-hmm. in blocks of 10, not tokenistically two or three. Right. No, no, no. But we've, yes. we've, just, we've done that with the African community, the Victorian African Communities Action Plan Implementation Committee. Um, managed to negotiate a block, a block. of spaces mm. within the AICD. Well, that's fantastic. So, You're ahead th- so you've got oh, a precedent. The foundation's <laughs> always ahead of the game. But I, but I think, you know, a continuous amount of people going through for five years, mm-hmm. like 10 out of the 30 for every single course, would not only change the director course... Yeah. But it would change the AICD. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and um, I'll step a bit carefully now. But uh, But I think that's so important because you have to have... The qualified people, and nobody wants to set people up to fail for those director roles, but government are looking for a diverse mm-hmm. voice. They now have guidelines for diversity, for selection of diverse board candidates. That's really important. Yep. And, you know, a cohesive community, again, needs mm. representation, needs to see representation. Yes. Absolutely. Needs to see 
skilled people, you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And we need fabulous people on these boards. And in mm-hmm. like you said, in numbers as well. So we That's need to right. steer away from tokenism. And what you said earlier really resonated as well. I think you mentioned a cohesive society doesn't box you in mm. to one identity. Because if you weren't, I guess, given the freedom to be... Um, white then you probably wouldn't have been able to be an ally from that white perspective and you know acknowledging your white privilege but then if you weren't able you know given the freedom to also rest in your identity as um an lgb sorry an (laughs) lgbtiq plus then you wouldn't have been able to express yourself from that lived experience as well so it's true that we need to give people the grace to be Many, many identities. And look, it's only been in the last two roles that it's been okay to be part of the LGBTIQ mm. community. That so. way you're <laughs> able to contribute to a socially cohesive society yeah. from different angles. Yeah. And it's yeah. important. That's such a lovely word, Lydia, though, grace. Mm. It, it, it's yeah, it, it it's is. just a, a, a wonderful thing to think that there are actually people within society that have that grace that are actually able to show the way. And, mm. and I'd be really interested to... to talk a little bit about that sense of the strengths in Australian society. What do you think the things are that make Australia Australia that actually benefit to contributing to social cohesion? Well, if I nail it down a little bit to Victoria, which is yep, where Victoria's I'm... Victoria's fine. <laughs> sure. That's all right. That's where I've got some... I think a lot of Victorians would think they're special, <laughs> but yes, we'll start there. Well, I'm, I'm not the Federal Commissioner. I'm the Victoria Commissioner. But I think the Charter of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. You know, not every state, not every country, should, absolutely, across the world has a Charter of Human Rights and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives us the freedom, you know, in so many ways, not just to, to life, but freedom to express yourself, for religious belief... Yeah. So, so I think the laws and the Equal Opportunity Act, you know, that we have, I'm, I'm the guardian, and I'd call it guardian, custodian of four of the laws, which and the Racial Religious Tolerance Act and the new Change and Suppression Conversion Act. So with the Charter and the Equal Opportunity Act, those four laws, I think, I think send a really clear message that in Victoria, discrimination is not acceptable, yeah. that um, everybody is equal mm-hmm. under the law, uh, before the law, and I think that's the framework that yeah. we can fall back on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the key, that's for me. That's a that's a society. I mean, we talked about individuals and what you can do as an individual, but that's a society saying a charter of human rights. Everybody's equal. Everyone deserves an opportunity, and everyone should reach their full potential. is is the basis. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think Victorians have taken quite a lot of pride out of that approach. That, that they actually want to see that and want to be part of a society mm. that is actually demonstrating that that pride in in the sense of equalness that mm. uh, that we actually all have the right to as you said right at the beginning participate but uh, sometimes ensuring that people can even whether it's through the AICD or whoever it might be sometimes those people there are blockages there are people there that are stopping that level of participation whether it's um, you know consciously or, or not mm-hmm. um, it, it's interesting to try to figure out where where do you go to next to deal with some of these um, particular yeah. hurdles or or blockages that might be there can you do you have any advice if you like to the listeners as to how they might in their own personal lives sort of challenge some of these uh, these areas of, of blockage yeah. Well, it, it'd be um, uh, remiss of me not to advertise the Victorian Ecology <laughs> and Human Rights Commission Absolutely. as a place. <laughs> so you can ring one three hundred two nine two one five three to make a complaint. Mm-hmm. 
and we're trying to make that more simple, simpler. Uh, and just also our inquiry line, which is in- inquiries at veriok, v-o-h-r-c.vic.gov.au. Uh, and I think that's really important for people to be able to feel like they, if they have been discriminated against or um, uh, experienced racism, that there's somewhere mm-hmm. that you can go and, and you can get advice, yeah. you can talk. Um, and obviously um, there's the Racial Religious Tolerance Act and we hope to update that because it's a terrible name, no one wants to be tolerated. Set <laughs> um, in its time, but, but watch this space and, and of course also the change in suppression or conversion practice yeah. if you feel you've been... Um, affected in that area as well so certainly an individual i think can come to us but there's so many other places Mm -hmm. as well um but it's it's an interesting process though because some people and certainly some of the research that we've seen don't necessarily know at what point even though they might feel uncomfortable they don't know whether or not it is racism or is it discrimination? Is it a word I I (laughs) choose to use in relation to that particular experience? What were you going to say? I was going to talk about this whole idea of addressing racism. And I think from the ground and being a young person myself, one thing that I've observed is that people um, aren't really aware of the processes around um, how they can uh, deal with racism. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've have any sort of uh, a lot of people don't have this confidence that it will be dealt with in a way that will honor that experience and which it really does and I've seen that happen a number of ways and then like you said it's also recognizing because what a lot of people say they experience in this country is microaggressions so Mm. that subtle um, covert sort of racism that they don't even really clock until maybe (laughs) years later and they're reflecting over their experience at least in my my experience that that's what it was you know I had a lot of experiences that I didn't understand really until later so I think it can be tough for people because they just tend to walk away from a lot of situations feeling uncomfortable or Mm. maybe (laughs) a little less confident or death death by a thousand cuts yes right right Mm. right what I call it (laughs) what it feels like and every cut you don't think is significant enough to make a complaint right the end of the week the 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 fourth person or the 50 54th person that does something you you want to make a complaint mm-hmm. about? Yeah, mm. I think that's why the inquiry line is so good to talk about it, and yeah. our report racism apps, um, which you can find on the website too. Just if you want to report it, yeah, you know where it happened, what happened, you know. Uh, I think that's really important mm. to be able to help us collect a picture and to do the advocacy. Mm-hmm. I think yes. is is important. But you know, I think it's got to start with the individual. And as we said in the, the first part of this is we've got to educate ourselves. I think that's Absolutely. Mm. So what can we do? We've got to start with the individual and then look at what what role you're playing. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like it's our own organisation as well. Um, we're a very white, heavy human rights commission. Um, and, you know, then they employed another white commissioner on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think to just name that, you know, publicly on a podcast, but also <laughs> actively work in your organisations to make them culturally safe. Mm-hmm. You've got to start in your own organisation before you can go out further. And so, you know, I've been there 12 months now and we've formalised the People of Colour Network, um, also the Deadly Arms Group and the other diversities. Mm-hmm. We've got a Pride at Commission LGBTI group and a DEN, I love that name, <laughs> Dis- Disability <laughs> Enablers Network. So all of, oh, the, wow. all of the groups mm. um, meet and they meet directly with me. Yeah. So y- I've given, I've used my privilege or my authorising power to attend those groups to give them a voice um, we're doing anti-racism training for our staff mm-hmm. you know you'd think yeah. 
you think your human rights commission would know that and you'd expect them to know that but <laughs> it, like it's lifelong learning isn't it right uh, absolutely and and another theme that seems to come up is the fact that um that many cultural groups and uh, are actually evolving over time so you can't necessarily talk about them 10 years ago and assume everything's the same now all these groups are changing yeah. and developing and taking on their own identity, ma- making their own choices about what they want their future to look like. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to understand and move at the same t- pace. And mm. uh, and I think that's sometimes something that's very, very difficult to do. We, you know, language doesn't necessarily move as fast as it should. Mm. There are a whole lot of different things that people take time or it moves to really adjust fast. to. Or yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it may well, but <laughs> the keeping yeah. up bit keeping is up. the keeping slow up part. part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the slow part. <laughs> and your career obviously involves impressive work at both that systemic level and the grassroots level, which you touch on in this conversation. Um, obviously, we all exist at different sort of levels in society. Um, what what are yeah? What, how how have you found? What are the sort of biggest ways that we can contribute at a grassroots level, or just an everyday person's level, for you know yeah. creating this socially created at the supermarket society? or yeah? yeah. <laughs> I think bystander uh, mm-hmm. intervention where it's safe is good, and don't mm-hmm. don't put up with racism. You see it, call it out, or homophobia or transphobia or any of the things, any of the phobias um, mm-hmm. and isms. Uh, I think that's important. I, I think e- educating yourself, mm-hmm. educating yourself, and getting active, and not just click active <laughs> on social media, but it, that's a powerful tool as well. I think there are opportunities to get actively involved, to volunteer in groups, um, to become an ally, you know, for other groups, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately, if you have privilege, and everybody has a privilege somewhere, you yes. Know, um, and if you have that privilege, whether it's as a white person or as a heterosexual person or a cisgender person or, you know, as a high socioeconomic, use that privilege or leave her, leave mm-hmm. her that privilege. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's okay to have it as long as you use it. It's so one of the things I'm interested mm-hmm. in around that is, is how do you ensure that people use it in a way that is not patronising, <laughs> that is not paternalistic? Because there, there is a, yeah. a an ability to have a mentality that just brings the wrong for, – for all the good intent, it's actually not yeah. necessarily helping the situation. Mm. Any thoughts on, on how do we, how do we sort of that. get people to think about things from a – that perspective. Yeah. Rem- have you got time for a quick story? Reminds me of <laughs> Yes, please. Yes, we love story time. <laughs> and every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. Um, it was a uh, – I won't, I won't say which organisation. It's a very large global mm-hmm. organisation and it was when I was LGBTI commissioner and they asked me to come and launch their Pride Network and it was a very excited ally. So an ally is a heterosexual cisgender – cisgender being someone who's not transgender um, – person who set up this a very high level person who set up this this group and they had this big rainbow cake and they're launching this pride network and they're all so excited and i'm up there at the front with with this person and they were so excited they asked all the lgbtiq people to stand up (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh oh, it's like a train wreck that you're seeing in slow motion you couldn't stop it and i sort of leapt up to the microphone and go maybe do that. <laughs> yeah, everybody stand up. You know, it's just, it was one of those things. Oh, so all, as you said, Anthea, all the best intentions absolutely. in the world. Right. Just, yeah. just, yeah. just you know, completely off. One just rainbow cake completely. does not get rid of a lifetime of discrimination. No. And yeah. Just because you're now comfortable and understand mm-hmm. doesn't mean that 
everyone and every cultural group is going to want to jump up and stand up. Mm-hmm. Oh, know? absolutely. Um, so you need to just do that. I mean, I try to do that by using my privilege. I um, I, I was appointed as uh, a member of the Victorian Anti-Racism Task Force, as just as not as me, but as the chair, mm-hmm. as the commissioner. And I just said, well, well, no, thank you very much. I'll send a person of colour from the commission. Yeah. This was like day one. And then I realised that that was a person, would be a person of a, you know, a lower VPS level than was really uh, wanted. Yes. Because you know, like, that task force was, you know, executive mm-hmm. level. And I said, well, that's who's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and she's great. Monica's great. Yeah. And oh. she's shaking her, you know, Monica. <laughs> oh, we all love Monica. Yes. So, you know, I sent Monica, which is just, yeah. uh, you know, so giving up your position, you know, is important. Um, making space, absolutely, I think is, is really and, and part not of being it. confined by a system or a number or whatever it might be that you can actually come at things from a totally different perspective. And mm. and I think one of the things that that would it would be nice to see move faster is is at the federal level where there does tend to be a, a there is a tendency to put people into buckets mm. Mm. and to deal with that bucket and that bucket well, and that bucket. You know. In, in Commonwealth, it's easier, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, and absolutely. It's, it's easier. And 25 so million people you've got to deal that's right. with. And <laughs> so within those buckets, we have to look through an intersectional lens. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's that's the key and that's up for everyone. And as I said, not those cultural groups to have to put their hand up and say, don't forget me. Yeah. But how do we create programs and systems that are inclusive of people with a disability and also mm. multicultural, you a- know? Absolutely. And... and and I do think there is a need to start to talk more about inclusion mm. and removing barriers for anybody to participate rather than thinking, okay, now how do we deal with somebody from this particular group accessing and how do we deal with another? If you actually take it from the systems perspective and start to remove anything that might get in the way of anybody, you start to sort of change how you might view what's going on in the world. I agree. It, it contributes. It, it's a part of our multicultural identity as Australia. We always have to adjust and be conscious of our, you know, complex mm-hmm. identity. Um, and I guess that, that, that brings a question about, which is, do you think we would be able to build a more soci- socially cohesive society quicker if we were conscious of the change that we're trying to make? Like oh, if we were yeah. talking about it like, hey, everyone, <laughs> we're, we're trying to do this quicker. We're trying to build a socially cohesive society. This is how we think we can do it. Let's all actively, mm-hmm. proactively participate. Because a lot of people seem to just be walking around and doing things intuitively or as as they feel right not necessarily because we have this agreed upon mutual goal Mm. i think that there there's a lot of advocates doing their own patch Mm. you know Mm -hmm. and i think the strength comes when we work together so when the multicultural community the disability sector the lgbti sector you know all come together to work on a collective you know there's times when we individually need to do our own work Mm. Even the letters of the alphabet need to individually do their own alphabet letter work. Yeah. Yes. But there's times when we come together that I think are really, really powerful because it, there are so many issues. There are so many areas of, uh, you know, um, that need the social cohesion glue. Mm. Um, it's hard to know where to put your energy. It'd be easy for an individual to go, well, where would I start? Is it racism? Is it mm-hmm. – what? I- where do I start? Mm. Um, and I think it's pick something – and and find the the coalition of of people that are working on that 
and then that coalition what is what is the things that are similar with this movement you know what's a sim- what's similar between you know climate emergency and me too yeah, yeah. Where, where are the where are the overlaps? What are the things we can work on together? You're you're an incredibly modest and and considerate person, but you've shown huge amount of courage in the things that you've had to deal with through your life. Mm. Would you have some advice for young people where they might be feeling perhaps not quite particularly courageous right at this particular moment? How do they? Mm. How do you? find that within yourself to actually make that step forward and start to participate in a way when you maybe feel the world isn't on your side gee that's a good one yeah that's a good one (laughs) (laughs) look i you know the first thing i want to say you know would be make make sure that you feel safe in doing it Mm -hmm. i think your own well-being and i wish i could tell my 13 year old self that (laughs) your own well-being is, is something you should look after on the journey so know your limits. And then just give it a crack would be my yeah. other piece yeah. of advice. Like you're going to make mistakes. Like you're going to eat the date. Like you're going <laughs> to get yeah. it wrong. Yeah. You know, you're going you're gonna to do something mm-hmm. wrong. But, but again, as you said, the intent. And you're going to learn. You know, I, I didn't land in, on the earth knowing how to work with community, how to build coalitions, how to, you know, get legislation mm. through government. You learn these things. Mm-hmm. You learn strategies uh, and you'll find your niche. Uh, and it gets better. That's the other thing I would tell mm. young people. Yeah. Um, particularly with the LGBTIQ people, you know, like, you know, I was a suicidal 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was, a, you know, a choice between my sexuality and my spirituality. And I made a pact with myself that if it was still bad at 30, I would deal oh. with it then. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad you By gave 20, yourself yeah, some space. Yeah, gave myself some mm. space. And it got better. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that's everybody's experience. It doesn't always no. get better. But... But certainly I got more tools. Mm-hmm. I got more perspective. I got more tools. I got more resources, you know, and I, and I got friends. Yeah, yes. more support. I got, you know, and that's, and that's what I did. I mean, when, when I established, uh, you've read quite an old <laughs> bio, but it's an oldie but a goodie. When I established, and I haven't thought about this for ages, when I established that first rural support yes. group, I went, okay, I've got a support group in Shepparton. What's happening in Warrnambool? What's happening in other places? So I came down to the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, infiltrated that, made myself the chair, uh-huh. and then we set up a statewide mm-hmm. network to support rural same-sex yeah. So you can go in, you know, make sure you get the backing and the support behind you of the systems, because the systems are there. Mm-hmm. You just might need to infiltrate them. Well, and, and as is the... Um Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission is yeah. there to stand behind you. Clearly, so. I needed to infiltrate. <laughs> and I didn't but that that whole sense of um, and is that the sort of advice you would give to you know you're a parent? Is that the sort of advice you would give to your child? Yeah, well, she, not often uh, this teenager asks me for advice, <laughs> but if no. just gets given it, yeah, 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 that's it. That's it. She's um she's fourteen, yeah, and um fourteen and fabulous, and absolutely, mm-hmm. you know that. Um, look after herself, but have a go. Yeah. She just recently ran for um, – oh, she'll love me talking about her on radio. <laughs> <laughs> recently ran for student council. Didn't didn't oh, get in. Okay. Didn't get in. But, but she gave it a go. A, had a crack and was very honest in her advertising and, and so on yeah. about herself and, and all her different diversities. She's neurodiverse. Um, didn't get in, but she – She had a shot. She had a shot and every kid with a neurodiversity at that school saw that someone put their hand up and mm. had a go. Mm-hmm. That's it. So, 
uh, I think that's that's what I'd say to people, young yeah. people. That's what I'd say to myself. It's it's a it's an uh, I think it's an incredibly important part of social cohesion, mm. is people feeling safe, um, but then also f- building up that confidence by trying a little step and then another step and then another step, and it's amazing what you can actually achieve. And we keep coming across people all the time mm. that have just achieved em- enormous things without even anticipating that that's what they were actually doing. Yeah. Mm. So and, um, and for us that have achieved things to make sure that it is a culturally safe place. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not, I don't want to say young people, but for everyone to start that journey. Yeah, mm. yeah. absolutely. Thank you for this conversation. Ab- absolutely. Thank you so much, Ro, for having been a part of this. This is um, another extraordinary opportunity to talk about social cohesion from another perspective. And uh, it makes an enormous difference to the people that are listening to this podcast, but also to Lydia and I simply to be able to have these conversations. So we're just delighted that you've been here and thank you so very much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you both. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.